How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Whenever we got the email from Dr. Dixon about the clinical challenge, it actually came out of the blue straight from him, and it had a link to last year's video, and it said, hey, I'm thinking about signing you guys up for this. I think you would rock it. Right before we walked into the call, we were going through our little bag, our little medical gear bag that they gave us, and the OB kit actually fell out. And I made a joke. <laughs> I laughed. And I was like, ha, we better not need that. Hello, EMS World listeners. This is Ginger Locke from the Medic Mindset Podcast. And today I'm talking with Russell Carter and Justin Ward from Montgomery County EMS. They recently won the ALS Clinical Challenge at EMS World Expo, and we have a chance to hear all about it. We start with them giving us a recap of the type of patient they had. As we were checking out our equipment, uh, we got dispatched. You know, gave us dispatch notes just like any other scenario or call. Uh, and it was for a 29, 29-year-old female for imminent delivery. Uh, so as we walk in the door, they did a really good job setting up everything to be a very realistic scenario. So there was you know, kind of living room equipment. patient was laying on a couch. There was a coffee table there. Everything set up, the whole nine yards. Uh, The patient was even painted pale to give you those initial visual cues that sometimes we struggle with in scenarios that aren't done to this high fidelity. Um, So walk in there, and again, mom is pale. She seems uncomfortable. She has blankets over her lap. Uh, You know, start assessing her, and you'll pull back blankets. We see that the baby had already been delivered. Mom is conscious, alert-oriented, however, still, you know, appearing uh, generally ill, or, you know, we can't really say that she's 100% uh, stable at this point, just on a general impression. Initial assessment of the of the baby, you know, found to be limp, cyanotic, low activity, very, very poor APGAR. Uh, so stimulated, warmed, wrapped everything up in one of the towels that she was actually covered up with, and there was no real change. So we immediately picked the baby up and moved him to the uh, nearby coffee table. So if we had to do CPR, we had a hard service to do that on. And, you know, we requested additional resources, uh, <laughs> literally anyone help, please. But yeah. There were no additional resources, <laughs> uh, of course, you know, why, why would they make it easy like that? So, uh-huh. so it was just us two. We realized maybe at a heart rate of 56 and just started kind of resuscitative me- measures. And we kept the baby on the monitor as far as pulse ox, end title, three lead, we had pads on, and then we actually kept the mom on the blood pressure. Uh, so we could monitor mom's blood pressure. Okay, that is really creative. Like you had one monitor attached to two patients. All right, then how did the rest of the call go? Uh, so we just kind of kept going through that call and we just uh, really aggressively resuscitated based on hypoxia and focused on compressions and positive pressure ventilations, providing supplemental oxygen. Uh, we initially actually had very little change in baby's condition. So we started talking a little bit about like congenital heart defects and you know, maybe we're not going to see a great change. Maybe we're actually causing harm by giving oxygen. And mom actually stayed stable the entire time. So we just had dad kind of coach mom through everything. We were just updating them and giving them, you know, this is what's going on. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Uh, and then as we we're 
talking through everything. I, I'd like to go back, and I wish we kind of had a recording of everything, because I felt like we were probably talking the entire time, so making sure our heads were staying in the same direction. I don't think that Russell and I can be in the same room together and not be talking to each other anyways. Yeah. Uh, we were partners for an entire year last year, and I don't think we – we were on the transfer truck taking people between downtown and downtown Houston and the woodlands over and over again. So we had to fill the time somehow and it was either a podcast or talking. All right. So I want to know more about this call that you ran at EMS world. One of the teams was live streamed on Facebook. They just EMS world arbitrarily picked the last team to go and it wasn't you guys. I would have loved to have seen a video of you guys performing your craft. If the world had gotten to see your performance, I'm going to make you brag on yourself a bit. Which parts would you have been like, okay, good, like I, I feel good that they got to see that, that they, that my peers, that medics all over the country and all over the world got to see me doing that, that thing well? I would say that the parts that I'm very proud of would have been inside the room once we got in there and we kind of got the ball rolling. Uh, we knew the situation that we were in. We knew this was going to be kind of a mess, but we we're going to make the best out of it. The feeling of calm that both Russell and I had inside that room, taking care of this, you know, critically sick baby, um, the feeling of calm and the pretty much nonstop communication. I don't think he could have stopped us. Even if you started yelling, we felt like kind of calm, cool and collected and continued, you know, working through the problem as it presented itself. I think it's one of those things that it's so easy to lose control of a call. If you start getting kind of spun up and spun out of control. And the funniest thing about that, I think is right before we walked into the call, we were going through, our little bag, our little medical gear bag that they gave us, and the OB kit actually fell out. And I made a joke. <laughs> I laughed. And I was like, ha, we better not need that. Yeah. Our little coordinator, Judge, was kind of laughed too and put it back in there and walked in like, are you ready? Was, oh, so man. he knew, right? So as soon as he walked in, my face was just like, ah. That is one thing that <laughs> I was I'm very, I'm very happy that that part was not live streamed. I know because you, if they would have seen the just sheer <laughs> look of terror on my face whenever he said imminent delivery, it's like, man, Russell just made that joke. We, we shouldn't have said it. It's because I said it, they changed the scenario right before he walked in. I, I think so. Shouldn't have said it. Right then, I, I think that was really it. Just communication uh, and staying calm and the coordination of the entire efforts, and you know, not losing sight of somewhat. The, the big picture of things. The overall message I'm hearing is that teamwork and communication were key. Next year, let's say, let's say they invited you guys back as judges. What would you be looking for as you evaluated those teams as they came through? Because they're all so good. I mean, all three of those ALS teams, they were just stellar clinicians. They're these little things that make a difference. I mean, you have to pick a winning team, right? So what are those little things? Communication, I guess, is probably the big one. Uh, remaining calm on the scene and making sure everything kind of flows accordingly. And, you know, like I could ask someone, you know, what's the pediatric cardiac arrest epidose? And then they just be able to blurt it out to me. But can you put that into practice and, like, remain calm and coordinate everything? You know, talking to family, managing every aspect of the call, not just knowing a dose. Uh, and then I think the thought process is always really interesting. And by hearing their questioning, of, like their history of present illness or their assessment pathway in which they go down, I think it's really cool to listen and see those things and then see their thought process. So you can almost see their differential diagnosis as they go down these different questions and then see them start ruling out stuff with their diagnostics or, you know, they listen to lung sounds like, okay, well, you know, those are clear. So this isn't a problem or the communication 
seeing someone's thought process and differential diagnosis, those are always really, really big to me. And then just remaining calm and not getting sucked down a rabbit hole or going crazy, bouncing off the walls. I want to ask you more about this calm part. Being able to execute the medicine and take care of multiple patients in a low resource environment is not easy. (laughs) And I'm hearing you say the words that you need to keep calm, but exactly how do you do that? Do you know what you do to keep yourself calm? So whenever I was going through paramedic school, I actually learned this lesson from a ER doctor during one of my clinicals in the ED. He was talking to a younger female patient who was an SVT, and he was about to give 12 milligrams of adenosine to, and he was you know, walking around the room. He was the calmest one in there. Everyone else was looking for IVs or trying to pull up medicines and figuring out who's going to flush what and which lock you're going to use and stuff like that. And the sense of like, he just made eye contact with this, this young lady and told her that, you know, if, if you don't see me getting worked up, then there's no reason why you should be freaking out. Uh, so that's something I try to play into my practice as well. Maintaining the big picture focus, you know, trying not to get sucked into uh, the technical parts of our work, but being able to take a step back, as my paramedic instructor used to say, take a step back, check your own pulse, and then decide what you're going to do next. Time to start prioritizing tasks that need to be done and start executing as they come. You know, I remember hearing a really good piece of advice was don't just do something, stand there. Uh, you know, trying to find the time to do that in the call. I remember kind of the exact moment of we were, you know, I was doing compressions and kind of holding a mask on the baby's face. It was actually an eye gel. And I was just thinking, I was like, okay, you know, compressing away. Okay. We've done this talking out loud, check, checkbox, 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 differential, check this mom. What about this? Dad, what about this? Um, so trying to find that time to do that. And also trying to, you know, unless the patient's stable, if you have a sick patient, try not to match the respiratory rate. So if they're freaking out and they're really tachypnic, don't do the same thing to yourself. And then, Obviously, if someone's not breathing well, you don't really want to match that either. But, you know, take that step back and take a deep breath. And that always seems to calm me down. So on my way to calls or anything, if I'm starting to get nervous, I just literally, I close the PCR, I close my phone, whatever the case may be, and I just take a deep breath and, you know, realize that we're going to get through the call just fine. And, you know, just try and recollect yourself and start over from scratch and fly back on on ABCs and what you know, what, what do you not know yet? What can you find out? Yeah. And then noticing the breathing, I think that's the important part. So when you're with a patient who's anxious and they're breathing fast or they're uncomfortable or nauseated or they're in pain, I think we have, it's a natural human response to mirror that. Like when you see someone smile, you smile back. And the first step in being able to begin to control any of that is just noticing that you're doing it and then controlling it before it's gotten away from you. And I recently did an interview with Dr. Ben Abo where we discussed using humor on calls to help people stay calm. I can't imagine that you did on this call, but I have to ask, did you use humor at all on this call? Actually, I did. We were in the middle of the call and um, the volunteers, they did an awesome job. I think they were EMT students uh, with a school around. So they were the, uh, the female patient uh, and the male volunteer that was sitting behind her, I was verbally coaching them and trying to keep them calm as I would any real patient. And I think that they, they kind of saw that opportunity and they, they fired one shot back at me and said, uh, I said, you know, we're waiting for this, this transport unit to show up and then we're going to get you guys to the hospital. We're going to take good care of you. Um, we're doing everything we can for the baby. We're um, expending every resource that we have available to us. And the, uh, the volunteer sitting behind the couch looks at me and he goes, I thought you guys were the ambulance drivers. 
<laughs> there was absolutely, um, if, if there was not such a sense of calm, I don't think that he would have felt comfortable throwing that out at us, but it absolutely brought me back, brought me back to life with that. Uh, it kind of, I was able to, uh, if nothing else that at least brought me back into, you know, maybe this scenario isn't the end all be all and I can take a breath and check my own pulse for a second. That's perfect. And he felt calm enough to do it because you had set the tone in that room. It feeds on each other and then you get a little from him and then that makes you more relaxed and then he gets more relaxed and it's just this chain reaction that continues. And the fact that you're emotionally open and available to even see the humor in something, I think it just shows that you were you were dialed into like the highest performance kind of state of arousal you could have had. Definitely in the zone. If we were wide-eyed and panting and breathing hard and freaking out, there's not a chance that he would have thrown that at us. But I think that he could feel our calm demeanor, and it was just an awesome, awesome time. Speaking on them just for a minute, Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone who hosted this scenario, they all did like a phenomenal job. But traditionally, I've not been the biggest fan of scenarios in the past <laughs> just because it can be really dependent on who's holding the scenario, right? If they're just following a sheet of paper, how much info is really written. Sometimes you ask questions they don't know the answer to and they kind of throw it off the fly. Then maybe it doesn't really match the presentation, you know, whatever the case may be. But the whole presentation of the patient, the realism of the mannequin, having the eye simulate monitor was really awesome. It literally worked exactly like a Zoll. All of the judges, not just one judge. So it's, you know, just based on one opinion, having a physician involved, they were all just really phenomenal, phenomenal people to, to work with. And I 100% recommend anyone going through that scenario again, or going through a scenario like that, just because sometimes it's hard to match the high fidelity that we got to encounter on that. I think they will be really happy to hear that because they worked really hard on it. They really cared about making the simulation useful. So last question for you guys, it sounds like you hadn't really planned to do this, that, that at the last minute, your medical director kind of told you, <laughs> you're going to be doing this. Did you guys have any practice? Before this, whenever we got the email from Dr. Dixon about the clinical challenge, it actually came out of the blue straight from him. And it had a link to last year's video and it said, hey, I'm thinking about signing you guys up for this. I think you would rock it. With that came the the realization that this is a multiple team, like like people have teams for this. And uh, that's we, we expressed that concern to him. And he said, no, no, no. I, I know you guys. and I, I think you guys are going to do well. You know, have have some have some faith in yourself. I wouldn't say we walked in expecting to win um, at all. Uh, we expected to go in and put on the performance to the best of our abilities, and we kind of fell back to our training that we get uh, here at MCHD, um, just like our baseline stuff. Um, stuff we knew that at the end of the day, if it was some crazy off the wall scenario, we could fall back on the stuff that we prepare for regularly uh, with patients here. We knew that it wasn't going to be anything that we couldn't handle and we couldn't manage. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to get 100% correct, but we knew we could at least maintain a sick patient because we do it on a daily basis. I think that's a great way to think about it. You're just going to go do what you do all the time when you take care of people. Yeah. We did do some uh, some tabletop scenarios with Dr. Dixon as well, <laughs> I think like the day before or the, something like the that. The day before the yeah. competition in the lobby of our hotel room at a small little circle table. It was me, Russell, Dr. Dixon, and Chief Campbell. We sat down and Dr. Dixon ran us through uh, three scenarios. He whipped out his notebook and a pen and started giving us scenarios. And we kind of verbalized our way through three of them. And he goes, yeah, I think you guys are going to do well. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, okay. All right, here we go. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. 
All right, guys. Well, you know, I, f- I feel like we could probably talk forever, but any lessons learned from that simulation, either about medicine or about yourself? I think that one, one of the, my favorite parts about this is that the situation that we're placed in with just being you and your partner, we're not going to get calls like this every tour, every shift. Like we're not going to get a call that's like this. Having the opportunity to practice your skills and, and being able to put yourself in the situation of, yes, this is going to happen eventually. Uh, I need to always be ready for a call like this. Um, you know, some people may never experience this call, whether it be in a scenario or out in the field. Um, and if I do experience this call out in the field, I want it to be something that I'm comfortable with. I would like it to be something that, uh, you know, I don't want this to be my first time seeing a um, newborn that I need to resuscitate. I want to have that kind of baseline foundation that I can fall back to. Like, you know, I, I did go through this before. Sure. It wasn't a real life. It wasn't a real life situation, but uh, in a scenario, I was able to, you know, calm myself down and perform and work with my partner and we were able to get through it and everything turned out. Okay. So, you know, there's no reason to get all kinds of, you know, crazy hyped up, you know, just fall back on, on what we know and perform. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020 at EMS World Expo.